Let us pray for the reading and preaching of God's holy word. Holy Spirit, you know us by name and call us into Christ's kingdom. Let his words and teaching change our lives so that we may better honor and glorify his sacred name. Amen. The New Testament lesson is taken from the book of Revelation, chapter 22, beginning with verse 5, the word of the Lord. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night shall be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Here ends the reading of the New Testament lesson. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Jenny. As we have been going through the prophecies of the Hebrew prophet Amos, the Lord has roared from Zion a message of judgment, of wrath on the people of God for not living lives reflective of the grace that they were receiving from God, for not living lives reflecting the grace, the mercy, and the justice of of God. It was a message spoken against the cruelty, harshness, greed, and insensitivity of the people of God. And in our culture, we don't often, you know, think of God as a God who is wrathful. We think of that as an old-fashioned concept, and yet uh, Fleming Rutledge, the uh, Episcopal priest, in her book, The Crucifixion, Understanding the Death of Jesus Christ, she, she acknowledges this difficulty that modern people have with the concept of God's wrath or his, his anger. And nevertheless, she writes this. She says, there can be no turning away from this prominent biblical theme. She says, forget for a moment the Bible. Don't we too have wrath? She writes this. She says, a slogan of our times is, where's the outrage? It's been applied to everything from big pharma's market manipulation to CEO's astronomical wealth to, you know, public servants stonewalling. Where's the outrage, inquire many commentators, wondering why congressmen and officials and ordinary voters seem so indifferent. Why, she asks, has the gap between rich and poor become so huge? Why are so many many mentally ill people slipping through the cracks? Why does gun violence continue to be a hallmark of American culture? Why are so many innocent people on death row? Why are our prisons filled with such a preponderance of black and Hispanic men? Where's the outrage, we ask? The public is outraged over cyberspace, uh, in, in cyberspace, about all kinds of things that annoy us personally. The NIMBY, not in my backyard syndrome, she writes, but outrages in the heart of God go unnoticed. 
and unaddressed. She continues, if we are resistant to the idea of the wrath of God, his anger, we might pause to reflect the next time we are outraged about something, about our property values being threatened or our children's educational opportunities being limited or our tax breaks being eliminated. All of us are capable of anger about something. God's anger, however, is pure. It does not have the maintenance of privilege as its object, but goes out on behalf of of those who have no privileges. The wrath of God, she writes, is not an emotion that flares up from time to time as though God has temper tantrums. It is a way of describing his absolute enmity against all wrong and his intent to set matters right. In these prophecies of Amos, the Lord roars from Zion his warning to the church, to the Israelites, to the the people of God. In our abundance and blindness, he calls us to turn to him and live, to turn our hearts again to the path of justice, to come to the aid of the poor, the orphan, the widow, and the migrant, to build lives on the grace of the Lord and to remember his salvation and so be transformed into agents of justice, not by liking something on Facebook, but by actually investing in real people around you, which is so much harder than clicking a like. It says to remember his salvation and so be transformed, to become as the church, as Israel, as his people, an alternate culture to the surrounding cultures, in, in Amos' day, the armies of Assyria were on the march. They, they were still years away, but they would reach Israel, he promised. And when they came, the ten tribes of Israel would be carried off into exile. Their cities will be leveled. Their, their, their farmland would be turned up and salt poured on it to ruin it so no one could live. Other people would be brought in to land that they once owned, and they would be utterly decimated. The devastation would be shocking. It would silence them. It's like seven years ago when when there was an earthquake on the island of Hispaniola, the western side, the Republic of Haiti, and you saw in Port-au-Prince the presidential palace flattened like pancakes. You saw entire neighborhoods devastated. You saw 200,000 deaths, a quarter of a million people injured, a million and a half people homeless. And all you could see wherever you turned was darkness and destruction and devastation and the wailing and weeping and crying of victims. That's what devastation is. And Amos has been warning the people of Israel, that devastation is coming at the hands of the armies of Assyria. And when it comes, he is saying, you will know it is because you have turned your back on God. In that instance, the suffering, they would know why it was happening. Because they had been warned that God's judgment would be coming. We're going to look at the closing chapter of Amos. The very last prophecy as Amos speaks ahead to those who will witness the devastation who will witness the destruction, who will lose their homes and their families and their lands. In the midst of that destruction, in the midst of that loss, in this closing vision, Amos gives a word of hope that beyond the devastation, 
and beyond the judgment, God's purposes for his church, God's purposes for his Israel, for his people, would be fulfilled. What does it look like? Let's look at Amos chapter 9. In your pew Bible, we're on page 1431. This is Amos chapter 9, verses 11 through 15. The Lord roars from Zion. In that day, I will restore David's fallen tent. I will repair the broken places, restore its ruins, and build it as it used to be, so that they may possess the remnant of Edom, and all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord, who will do these things. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all of the hills. I will bring back my my exiled people, Israel, they will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will replant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. In this vision of what is to come, this vision of what Messiah, the Christ, the one spoken of and and hoped for in the Hebrew Scriptures, of what he will do when he restores the people of God, what is the vision? What do we see? The first thing we see loud and clear from their context, if you had their eyes with which to read, is that when the grace of God comes... When God's people are restored and the Spirit of God falls upon them and the work of their Savior is manifest, what you will see is you will see natural-born enemies brought together in one kingdom over which God will rule. We see this separation between the nations being healed. Where do we see this? He talks about the remnant of Edom will be possessed. What's the remnant of Edom? Who are the Edomites? The Edomites were the Israelites' worst enemies from day one, from the very beginning. The, the Israelites, you know, they, they, you know, they were descendants of Jacob. And, and the, the Edomites were the descendants of Esau. They were the cousins that never, ever got along. The cousins that were constantly getting in each other's way. The cousins that were constantly invading each other and tripping each other up when when Moses had brought the Israelites out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, and they were on their way to the promised land, there was a royal highway that went straight through Edom, straight into the promised land, and the Edomites refused Moses' entry. And so he then turned and and went back and, and begged again, and again the Edomites said no. And it caused great hardship for the Israelites, great hardship for the people of God. They went to war under King Saul. They went to war with the Edomites again under King David. In in the 10th century, they 
the, the Edomites invaded Israel and they fought almost constant warfare for centuries. And later centuries after this prophecy, it would be the Edomites that would actually pillage and plunder the city of Jerusalem after the Babylonians had sacked it. They were in league with the Babylonians to destroy Judah and Israel completely. They were worst enemies. It was like uh, uh, Israelis and Palestinians. It was like, uh, you, know, you know, what do we think? Well, it's like Arabs and Iranians, Serbs and Kosovars, Chinese and Japanese, uh, Democrats and Republicans. I don't know if you've been on social media over the last month or two, but there are natural-born enemies, people who just don't get along. Their perspectives are too different. They seem to have so little in common. They start talking about something. It could be anything. They just, they just fight and they argue and they get mad at each other. It's just natural-born enemies. The purpose of God, when the Holy Spirit falls and the redemption of God comes and he blesses his people, what will it look like but the remnant of Edom is right there in the same kingdom with the Jews? Natural-born enemies are going to sit in the pews together and worship the same God. In this language, it has a particular intimacy. You think, oh, it says they will possess the remnant of Edom. Does that mean they're going to take their land? No, that's not what it means. Does it mean they'll, they'll bring them in as slaves? A captive slave, Edomite force, to, to work our, our, our plots for us. No, that's not what it means. The language here in talking about possessing them is the language that Isaiah uses in Isaiah 4, verse 1, when he talks about the intimate oneness in a marriage, that they will have that intimate oneness. Imagine that. Political conservatives and political liberals, when the Spirit of God falls, it's the only place this will happen, is these natural-born enemies will have intimate oneness in the church. That means not just tolerating each other, not just bearing with each other in love, but actually being close to one another, close enough that they could hurt each other, and yet being sensitive not to do that, to go out of their way intentionally to be a blessing. It's, it's the language of, it's the terminology of marriage. In Genesis 48, it's the terminology used to describe adoption. In Genesis, where, where a man takes two of his grandsons and adopts them into the status of sons, that, that security, that commitment, that loyalty. It's, it's the language that's used of God's presence. In 1 Kings chapter 8, it describes the house that Solomon built for God, with which God chose to identify himself and in which God chose to dwell. And now, just as Israel, God is saying, just as Israel has been called by my name, just as the temple has been called by my name, so too shall the Edomites, your enemies, be called by my name. You will be possessed uh, of them. It will be like in a marriage. It will be like in an adoption where there's that, that commitment for the rest of my life to be in family with you. So the nations, God is saying, the goyim of the earth, not just the Edomites. He says, all the nations that bear my name, all of the Gentiles who, who believe in the God of Abraham, they're all going to come in and be one big family together as the kingdom of God. It doesn't happen anywhere else on the planet, folks. There are not groups of 10 to 12 political conservatives and political liberals getting together on Wednesday nights to talk about serious issues together. They don't do that. They don't hang out with each other. They don't even follow each other on Twitter except to, you know, express outrage at each other's tweets. Only in the church. 
the mark of the Spirit of God's work in your life will be the degree to which you are willing and actively loving your brothers and sisters in Jesus who are of a different political persuasion than you. Because your identity is in Christ. It's what happens when the Lord comes. The separation between peoples is healed. The Edomites and the Jews together in the same household. In our context, what might that look like? How do you actually actively love your brother or sister in Jesus who is wrong about almost everything? Well, I'll talk to those of you who are maybe believers in Jesus, Christians who in political matters are maybe more attuned to the political left. Left. Uh, uh, Can you affirm five positive things about your brothers and sisters in Jesus who maybe voted differently or have different political convictions from you? I'm going to ask the same thing of you others, so don't don't get too excited. Uh, um, Because this is the thing. When you love somebody, when you're committed to live in family with them, you, you don't listen to them in order to get in a word edgewise. You listen to them in order to know them because it's like a marriage. You're looking for the oneness. You're looking for the community. You're not just looking to be heard. You're looking to listen, to be quick to listen and slow to speak as the Bible instructs us because you love them and because you're investing long-term in relationship with them. And, and you want to affirm everything you can possibly affirm about them, not just I affirm that you are a human being made in God's image and you're not completely repulsive. That's not enough. That's not this kind of possession, this kind of unity, this kind of belonging together and loving one another. So those of you who maybe politically might tend to skew a little bit more that way, um, can you praise five things about political conservatives? We're in a practice. I want you to learn to practice because you can't, if you can't affirm them, you cannot love them. It's the calling of Christ here. I really value the way you put so much emphasis on personal responsibility. That's something conservatives, that's a, that's a big theme, personal responsibility. I really respect that. I really respect the way you value the dignity of work and of hard work. Uh, The way even Paul says, if a man will not work, he will not eat. That's the second one. I really respect the way you value marriage as an institution. You have such a heart for the unborn and so much concern for the developing embryo or fetus in its mother's womb, made in the image of God. I really want to affirm that and, and say thank you for that. You know, we may have different views on migration, but I really respect the way you are concerned to protect this country from the kind of violence and terror that is overtaking so much of the world. You actually want to keep my family safe. Thank you. Now, was that so hard? Okay, now, those of you who politically are maybe more on that side... Can you praise five things about your Christian brothers and sisters who politically might skew more in the other direction? It shouldn't be hard. 
You just look at what they, they view. You look at the values that they're trying to protect. You assess which of those values are biblical values, and you affirm that in them because you want to love them. Because this is the purpose of God in Christ, that when Christ comes, he will bring the Edomites and the Jews together, and it will be like they're married. You know, I really respect the way that you love the poor and you want to make sure that the poor are treated fairly. You know, I love the way you care about diversity and you want to make sure that people who are different, who maybe aren't in the majority group, that they get a fair shake too. You know, I'm, you care about racial justice and this society is so damaged and torn apart and there's such a history here. Thank you for caring about racial justice. You know, I hear the compassion that you have for migrants, and our perspectives might differ in public policy, but I'm really hearing your concern for migrants, for the the alien and the stranger, and I want to affirm that. You know, you're really working with a notion of solidarity that's biblical, because you're working on the assumption that we do actually owe it to one another as human beings to love each other and to treat each other well and to be concerned about those who are maybe not in your immediate family. I want to affirm that. Now, now was that so hard? You know, sometimes social media doesn't give you the opportunity to do this, but what you have instead is the church where you can actually listen to one another and affirm one another and build each other up because that is what it looks like when the Spirit of God comes down. Natural-born enemies become family together. It was the promise in the Old Testament from the very beginning when God called Abraham the the first of the Jews. He said, all the nations are going to be blessed through you. It's not just about one people. It was the hymn book of ancient Israel, how the the Jews, in their, their longing in worship, would cry out to God, and they would invite in all the people who were different from them to come and worship the Lord too. You know, clap your hands, all you nations. Shout to God with cries of joy. You know, shout to the Lord all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. You know, come before him with joyful songs and know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates. He's talking to, the, the, he's talking to a bunch of non-Jews. But they sang this in the synagogue. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Come on, we're going to do this together. Come on, Edomite. Let's go worship Yahweh together. It's the heart of God throughout. And you see it in Ephesians when Paul says that Christ came and died to tear down the dividing wall of hostility that separated the two and to make the two one. It's the hope even today in a politically polarized culture, that the church can do what no one else is able to do. The church is able to show that the gospel works and can bring diverse people together. There are marriages that are on the rocks over politics. Friends, build your marriage on Jesus and on his unconditional love for you in Christ. And if that's your foundation the lion and the lamb can lie down together in unity because a little child named Jesus is leading. That's the vision in Amos, is that natural-born enemies, Edomites and Jews, come and worship the Lord together in a love that reflects marriage and adoption and the love that God has 
for his people. During the Bosnian War of the 1990s, um, you know, it pitted Bosnian Serbs against Muslims, and it made the two sides bitter enemies. Um, After the war, journalist Chris Hedges heard a story of unusual kindness in the midst of the savagery. Uh, Rosa and Drago Sorok, a Bosnian Serb couple, told Hodges that during the war, the Muslim police in their town took their oldest son, Zoran. They took him away for questioning, and he was never heard from again. There was genocide in the land and reprisals against the innocent. Five months after Zoran's disappearance, his wife gave birth to their baby girl, but the mother was unable to nurse the child. There was no medical care, The city was being shelled, and there were severe food shortages. Infants were dying in droves. The family gave the baby tea for five days in a row, but the child, she began to fade. Rosa Sorak says this. She says, the baby was dying, and it was breaking our hearts. On the fifth day, just before dawn, The Soraks heard somebody stomping up to their front door. It was their Muslim neighbor, Fadil Fezik, one of the few people in town who owned a cow. He was wearing black rubber boots and holding half a liter of milk. Other families insulted Fadil and told him to let the children of the enemies die. But Fadil, the man with a cow and with heavy black rubber boots, kept showing up on their porch a second day, and a third day, and a fourth day for 442 consecutive days until the Sorak's daughter and granddaughter fled the country for the West. The Sorak's said they could never forgive those who took Zoran from them, but they also could never forget the kindness of their Muslim neighbor, Fadil. Drago Sorak said this. She said, the milk he had was precious all the more so because it was hard to keep animals. He gave us 221 liters. And every year at this time, when it's cold and when it's dark, and when we close our eyes, we can still hear the boom of the heavy guns and the sound of Fadil Fezik on the stairs. Here was the power of love, Hedges concludes his story. What this illiterate, Bosnian farmer did would color the life of another human being who might never meet him long after he was gone. It's an, in, in his act lay an ocean of hope, friends. That is the purpose of Christ, is he is going to do that in you. If he can do it in a Muslim, uneducated farmer in a war zone, then he can do it for you. It's the purpose of Christ to bring natural-born enemies together. The reason this is possible is because we see with this the promise that the curse itself will be reversed. The curse from the very beginning of history, when those first humans turned their back on God and disobeyed Him and were expelled from the garden, God cursed the ground, we read in Genesis. And ever since then, Humanity has been at war with the earth itself, the earth that knows that we should worship the Lord, that knows that we do not do that. 
the earth pushing up against us in our rebellion, in our separation from God. And what we see here is the promise that the earth itself will be healed, the earth itself that revolted against us in Haiti, causing such loss of, of, of lives, that brings earthquake, a tornado, famine, disease. The earth itself we see when the blessing of God comes. The earth gets reconciled to humanity as we get reconciled to God. The vision we see here in verse 13, we see it so uh, lavish that there's not enough time to gather the crops. The sower of the next crop finds that the last crop hasn't yet been harvested. And so he's walking over fields ready to be harvested, planting the next crop. There's just so much abundance The earth flourishes so fully that mountains, it says, will produce rivers of wine flowing down into the valleys below in verse 13. It's spectacular abundance, a a biblical vision of shalom, of the peace of God taking over the whole world, God and humanity and nature all woven back together with justice and mercy and love because the Lord is again our center and creation center and so we're all together rightly related. One author says it this way. He says the pent-up energies of creation held back for so long under our rebellion finally explode in one triumphant burgeoning as nature hastens to lay its tribute at the feet of him whose right it is to reign. God and man at table set down and creation celebrating that God has delivered us from our sins. So how can we be sure of this? It seems so idealistic. Um, Theologian J. Alec uh, Matir says uh, uh, that this promise, you know, to promise security is one thing, but to deliver it is is another thing altogether. He writes this, he says, can can he, uh, that is Amos, and convey and can we be absolutely certain that the time will come when the king will reign over a worldwide company, when sin's presence and power and penalty will, been, will have been removed from the scene, when abundance and satisfaction and security will be the order of the day, is it not too idealistic to be real? Is it not too good to be true? Is it not too impossible ever to be achieved? And yet he then says, realize what we have in this ninth and final chapter of Amos. For this is not a vision of what would be ideal. It is not even an aspiration after that. This is a pledge from your God that it will happen. The first prophecy of Amos, the first chapter, the first verse of the book begins with the words, these are the words of Amos. And the book ends in the last verse of the last chapter with the words, says the Lord your God. Because it's not just Amos speaking. It is the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is saying, my honor and my reputation is what at stake. My name is on the line here. It means even something more than that. Because for God, this, this is totally personal. Here at the very end of this book, when, when he makes this impossible promise of restoration of the cosmos, here he says, for only the second time in the book, that I am the Lord, your 
God. He makes it personal. He uses the possessive, your. It's not just the God that you choose to worship. It's, you, you talk about your car. You talk about your kids. You talk about your spouse. You talk about your God. Because there's a covenant relationship of mutual ownership, like in a marriage, where God, the senior partner, has reached down to claim you, his, his people, and to say, you're my own, and I now belong to you. It's God entering into mutual obligations. You know you owe things to God. You owe him obedience. You owe him worship. You owe him love. You owe him affection. You owe him your, your treasure and all you have. But do you understand that in entering into covenant with you, you, his people. He has also entered into obligations to you to be your God, to forgive your sin, to deal with your debts, to be your father, to, to, to do everything a father does to his child that he loves, to be there for you, to protect you from your enemies, and to bring you into his presence with great joy. It means God has skin in the game. And whatever the cost of bringing this promise to fruition, whatever it will cost to get you reconciled to God and get creation reconciled to you, whatever debt must be paid in giving this promise and making it a promise and saying that he is your God and making it personal like that, he is saying, I, God of the cosmos, will, as I swear by myself, pay this debt, pay it to the full. And bring my promise to fulfillment. And that's what Jesus, the Messiah, did at the cross. He paid the penalty. He paid the debt. Our lives were on the line. And God was faithful to his own promise. About once a year, I share the story of Brennan Manning, a former priest, author of the Ragamuffin Gospel, from his memoir, All His Grace. Brennan Manning tells us that when he was a young man, he had a childhood friend named Ray. Uh, Ray joined him. Uh, Really, they were joined at the hip. They grew up together. These two young men played on the same sports teams together. They double-dated girls together. They bought their first car together. They graduated high school together. And at the outbreak of war in Korea, they enlisted together. They went to boot camp together, and they were shipped out to fight together. Manning writes of one day in Korea in the trenches. His friend Ray was eating a chocolate bar one day when into their foxhole rolled a live grenade. Manning describes how Ray put his chocolate bar down. He looked up. He smiled at him, his toothiest grin. And then he threw his body on the grenade just as it blew up and exploded. Every other guy in that foxhole got out alive. He saved their lives, but he did it at the cost of his own life. Years later, when Manning was being ordained into the priesthood, his bishop asked him after which saint he wished to be named. And he could think of just one, his childhood friend, Ray Brennan. You see, Brennan was not the name... Manning was born with. He took the name of his friend. Not many of you were born with the given name of Christian. Some of you were. But you were named after the one who said, 
Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friend. If you're a Christian, Jesus said, I call you my friends. And he laid down his life for you to pay the debt so that the promise of God could be fulfilled, that the lion and the lamb will lie down together as Jesus leads them. Natural-born enemies will sit together in the pews of the church and love on each other and show the world the power of what Jesus can do in a community of people as the Prince of Peace. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we give you thanks and we give thanks to your Father who was faithful, who loved us, who washed us of our sins and made us your sons, your daughters your family. Oh, Lord, that you would give us the grace to reflect the self-sacrificial love of our Savior. We consecrate these elements to you now that we might see it, feel it, that we might swallow it whole. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.